around the UK, people are being urged to applaud the country's NHS health workers and carers in these unprecedented times. Honour those risking their lives to support others. Get outside, grab something, just make some noise. There has never been more public awareness about the importance of care. Every Thursday evening, millions of people across the country join together in a round of applause to say thank you to care workers on the front line of the crisis. But a grim reality underlies all of this. 5.8% of the whole residential care home population in England and Wales have died in the last month. Coronavirus has ripped through these wards with frightening pace. They're dying here. Every one of them, somebody's grandparent or parent or aunt or uncle, real people. 10,000 care home residents have died from COVID-19 at least a quarter of all COVID-19 deaths. On Wednesday, it was reported that the death toll is likely to be double the official figure. The death rate among social care staff is double that of the general working age population. So the big question is, what's gone wrong with social care? I'm not sorry for me, I'm just sorry. We never got the help we needed. Why were patients discharged from hospital and transferred into the hands of social care without a test? I know the care home are doing the best, but they need the help, they need the support from the government, which is not happening at the moment. The UK was slow into lockdown, slow on testing, slow on tracing, and slow on the supply of protective equipment. On this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we'll be looking at coronavirus and social care. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. This week, we're joined down the line by Sarah Bedford, Head of Social Policy at NEF. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Aisha. Thanks for being with us in this virtual strange, strange time. Let's kick off with the basics. So what is care work? So there's family carers, care workers who make house visits and those who work in residential care homes. Could you set out the different types of care work for us to help us understand? Sure. So millions of people in the UK rely on care. And that includes both paid care that's provided through the formal social care system and unpaid care that's often provided by family members. And focusing on social care in particular, generally, I mean, the aim of social care really is to support people to live well and to live independently, regardless of age or disability. And as you said, that kind of care work takes lots of different forms. So some people get support in their own homes by a care worker who comes to visit them or in their communities, while other people move to live into care homes and are supported there. And I think all of this means really that care work, because it happens behind closed doors, it's invisible to a lot of people. There have been various studies showing that public understanding of social care isn't very good. A lot of people aren't clear on exactly what social care is. A lot of people don't understand how it's funded as well. They assume it's free at point of use like the NHS and are often really shocked to find out that it's not. And I think another thing that surprises people is the sheer scale of social care. It's a really big service. The workforce is made up of one and a half million people. So it's actually bigger than the NHS. And this is also a service that is growing and that is going to need to grow into the future because more and more of us will need care. We've got an ageing population, so more of us are older and more of us have disabilities too. 
And of course, this means that we need to invest in social care. But the story of the past 10 years has really been the opposite to that, with serious cuts to social care, which have made various structural problems in the sector a lot worse. Mm, Okay, thank you for that comprehensive intro. We're going to dive down a little bit into talking about care workers themselves. I'm going to shout out my mum, Barbara. She is a carer. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Currently on furlough from a residential care home. I'm sure we could have a longer conversation about that, but she's at home painting portraits for the NHS to put in her garden and would desperately like to get back to work. But anyway, there are 1.6 million care workers, exactly as you said, in the UK. So could you talk to us about people like my mum? What are their pay and working conditions like? So I think a lot of the pressures of the social care system that we've got at the moment, which, like I said, has been underfunded for the past 10 years, have been pushed down onto care workers. Care work has you know, never been particularly well paid. It's really poorly paid right now. A lot of care workers are paid below the real living wage. So they're not really paid enough money to be able to live on. Increasing numbers of care workers are also on zero hours contracts. And turnover is really high in the social care workforce. So it's a precarious workforce. And it's made up predominantly of women. More than four in five care workers are women. Many are women of colour and one in five are migrants as well who face a higher risk of exploitation because of restrictions on their rights. So it's tough. It's really tough to be a care worker. And I think often care work is talked about as if it's not skilled work. It's sort of seen as women's work. It's often conflated with unpaid care work. And I think that kind of confusion can be used to sort of justify poverty wages for care workers. But care work, as I'm sure you know, because your mum's a care worker, requires a lot of different skills. You know, it requires a lot of practical skills, particularly for people who are supporting others who've got complex physical needs. But it also requires huge amounts of empathy, communication skills. And I think increasingly, that's getting recognised at the moment with the focus on key workers and people who are increasingly sort of recognising and grateful for the contribution that key workers like care workers are making. Mm, Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. I think exactly as you say, I know from experience, my mum is one of those people, she's on a zero hour contract or, you know, a bank staff as they call it, and also is constantly talking about how difficult she finds it to provide the level of care that she'd like to without adequate training, without adequate staffing, and exactly the things you talked about within this kind of much broader context of devaluing the labour itself and just not giving people what they need to do it well. And on that line, I'd kind of like to ask what do you think the kind of implications are for people who are actually using those services and people you know who are in the care homes who are having people come and visit them how does this all impact them? I think it has a really big impact I mean I think the kind of increase in precarity of care worker jobs because you know they have been low paid for a long time but they are increasingly precarious with that growing use of zero hours contracts means that Care workers are under a lot of pressure and it makes it hard for them to provide care well. You know, they're often given really packed schedules. They have to rush from house to house, from from person to person. Some 
councils who commission publicly funded social care because they themselves are under so much financial pressure have you know started commissioning really short care visits you know 15 minutes or less so all of this means that care workers I think often don't feel able to provide the kind of care that they want to provide there was a unison survey a few years ago that showed that three quarters of home care workers don't feel like they have enough time to provide dignified care. Okay, so I want to talk really quickly about that point you made around this definition of skilled versus unskilled. And that, you know, there's many problems with that, as we've already touched on. But in terms of the government immigration plans, they obviously announced back in February plans to close UK borders to unskilled workers. I'm using air quotes, you can't see me. Obviously, there's a lot wrong with that. But how would this affect the care sector, in your opinion? Well, Massively, because as I mentioned, one in five care workers are migrants. So that's a huge proportion of the social care workforce. And this is a workforce that we need to grow as well, not least because at the moment we can't recruit enough care workers to deliver the social care that we need to provide to people. There's actually around 120,000 vacancies in social care that providers are really struggling to fill. And I think, you know, you can see why the work is really poorly valued. It needs to be better paid and we need better conditions. So given all of that, and also given the fact that in the future, we're going to need even more care workers than that in order to provide the care that people are going to need, because more of us will need care. It seems mad that the government is putting barriers in the way that they're effectively, you know, shutting the doors to people who might want to come to this country and work in sectors like social care. Mm, Absolutely. Okay, so let's broaden out a little bit. One of the things that you talked about at the top was, I guess, people being confused about how social care actually works in this country. And, you know, when you speak to people, they're shocked. And I think that's been my experience as well. I want to talk a bit about how it's all funded and the structures themselves around employing care workers. So when we talked about childcare on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, we found that there were a few big chain companies who have really opaque financial structures that provide the majority of childcare. Is that similar for social care? Is there any government provision at all? How does it all work? Yeah, I think there's quite a similar set of kind of structural problems in social care as there are in childcare. So first of all, on the question of how it's funded, we don't have a universal social care system. It's not free at the point of need like the NHS. It's means tested. And there's also a needs test. So if you're struggling to get by and you think that you need help, then you go to your local authority and you have a needs assessment and they will tell you if your needs are high enough to meet the threshold. And both of these tests, the means tests and the needs test, have become more stringent in the past 10 years because social care funding has been cut and so services have been cut back. And that creates a situation in which actually a huge number of people end up going without. So we know, for instance, that there are one and a half million people over the age of 65 who are living with unmet care needs. So that's the kind of funding situation with social care. And then on the delivery side, 
So social care is delivered by a market, which includes tens of thousands of independent providers, a lot of which are private businesses. And local authorities have a duty to shape that market. But in practice, what that generally looks like, particularly when local authorities have seen their funding cut, is awarding contracts to providers through a process of competitive tendering. And sometimes that process is very short-termist and very cost-driven. So you can see a race to the bottom with different providers trying to undercut each other on cost in order to win contracts. And of course, that kind of contributes to some of the stuff that we've already talked about. It makes care worker jobs more precarious, for example. And it also really like favours, I think, some of those big chain companies that you just mentioned that are often backed by private equity and that are quite well placed to compete in these short-termist, very cost-driven processes. So since the 1990s, there's been a long-term trend for an increasing role for these chain companies in the provision of social care. And that creates a whole kind of bunch of different problems. I think firstly, there's evidence that some of these companies adopt practices that we know are at odds with care quality to try and save money. So for instance, they build big care homes in a very standardized format and they try and use kind of layouts for the care homes that minimize the number of care workers that you need in the home. So that's kind of one problem. But then also, often they have very extractive financial practices. So they are uh, sometimes deeply in debt. One of the most infamous examples of this, I think, is Four Seasons, who were in the news a lot a couple of years ago because they were really close to collapse. And when you've got these kind of massive providers that are delivering care across the country that have these opaque and unstable financial structures, if it does look like they're going to go bust, then that puts massive pressure on the care system. And you end up in a situation where tens or hundreds of local authorities are having to plan how are we going to make sure that all of the people in our local area who were being cared for by this provider can be cared for if this provider goes bust. So, yeah, similar kind of set of issues really in social care as in childcare. And on the childcare topic, when I spoke to Lucy about it, she mentioned that the kind of too big to fail narrative and how the government would have to step in if those huge companies did go bust in order to plug that gap. We're going to talk about the government explicitly in a second, but is that something which you could foresee happening if that did happen? I think it should happen. I think it hasn't happened in the past. So in 2011, a huge care provider called Southern Cross went bust. And I don't think there the government did step in. But yeah, you can absolutely see there's a really strong case to be made for the government to be kind of proactive in these situations where they have worries about companies 
that are struggling and that are too big to fail to make sure that, you know, if they get taken over, that they get taken over in a sustainable way. And I think there definitely is a role for government there in doing that. You've mentioned it, obviously, already, but I wondered if you could clarify the role of government in all of this. I'm still a bit murky on, like, what is it, if anything, that they, you know, they do provide? And I know that councils and local authorities are involved, and then social care companies, like you said, get calls to tender from local authorities, and councils get their money from national government. So kind of, I guess the question is, how does that all work? What percentage of it is covered by that? And could you say a little bit more about potentially what the last 10 years of austerity has done to local authority budgets to contract that work in the first place? Yeah, so it's really complicated in social care. So the public sector delivers hardly any social care. And that's a huge shift from, if you look back to the 70s and before, it was predominantly the state who was providing social care. And that all changed with various pieces of legislation, which introduced this marketplace into social care and which forced uh, local authorities to start encouraging a bigger role for businesses in the provision of social care. And so now, you know, even though there is a tiny bit of public sector provision here and there, the role of local authorities is now as commissioners and, as I mentioned before, also as market shapers. You know, they're still responsible for social care provision in their area. They're responsible for ensuring that there's diverse provision that meets people's needs. They're responsible for making sure that, like, people in their area sort of have their needs met. But I think, you know, you can see how issues around accountability develop like in this very sort of complex environment. So in theory, local authorities are sort of responsible for shaping the social care workforce as well. But not much, you know, in practice goes on there. And I think what we really need is a sort of stronger set of national standards to lift up social care provision and to develop kind of stronger lines of accountability within the system. So we've sketched out the landscape a little bit. I want to talk more specifically about coronavirus and the impact. So let's start off with what we were just discussing. So government funding. The government have given councils extra funds to deal with COVID. Is it enough? I feel like you're going to say no. (laughs) Yes, I am going to say no. And I think the message from government to local authorities has been really quite confused because towards the start of the pandemic, the message was, you know, do what you need to do to protect people in your local area and we'll support you. And more recently, that message seems to have shifted with government talking much more about local authorities Sort of sharing the burden of the cost. And so I think there's a real kind of lack of clarity there. I also think the initial money that was announced for social care back in March was specifically around speeding up the process of hospital discharge. So the government wanted to free up, I think, around 15,000 hospital beds And care homes were told that they would need to take thousands of people 
who would be discharged from hospital. And it's now becoming clear that the rush to get people out of hospital meant that people with coronavirus were discharged into care homes and that made the spread of the virus worse. Care homes didn't have access to testing, so you know they didn't necessarily know who had coronavirus and who didn't until people started showing symptoms. And so they weren't able to isolate people with the virus and protect them and protect everyone else as well. Okay, well, that leads me on quite nicely to my next question, which is, yeah, about the fact that we know that during the pandemic, care homes have been hit really hard, and at least 10,000 care home residents have died from COVID-19. And some reports say that the numbers could actually be twice as much as that. And many of those receiving social care, as we know, are, are the most vulnerable to the virus. They're also kind of under the shield, as it were. So what support, if any, has the government given to social care during the pandemic, kind of above and beyond what's been discussed? And are there any other the reasons other than what you just laid out that you think that social care has been hit so hard by this? I mean, I think, you know, the government is clearly trying to get enough PPE and testing out to care homes, but they are still a really long way from containing the outbreak. They announced a couple of weeks ago that testing would be available for all care home residents and workers. But this week they admitted that the number of tests is actually in the tens of thousands. And that might sound like a lot, but more than 400,000 people live in care homes and the workforce is huge. So the tests aren't getting to care homes. And providers have also been warning recently that they're running out of PPE. So it's clear that they're not getting the support that they need. And I think there's both a problem that these plans came weeks too late. They were being made while people were dying in care homes and they haven't been effective. You know, they're still not getting enough PPE and tests out there. I also think there are issues that go beyond PPE and testing that the government really needs to deal with. And that kind of takes us back to what we were initially talking about which is the situation that care workers are in. So at the moment, if care workers fall ill with the virus or for other reasons, if they have to self-isolate, if they need time off to look after their own family members, they're at risk of losing pay. A lot of care workers have no form of company sick pay, so they rely on statutory sick pay, which is just £95 a week. And some care workers aren't even entitled to that if they don't work enough hours. And of course, as we talked about, care workers are really low paid. So a lot of care workers are in a situation where they can't really afford to take time off if that means that they're going to lose pay. And so they're having to make these really terrible choices about risking their own lives and other people's lives by continuing to work uh, if they've come into contact with the virus or going without pay and, you know, worrying about whether they're able to pay their rent and put food on the table. So, yeah, it's a really impossible situation for care workers at the moment. 
Mm, and one of the things, obviously, that's been kind of trending on Twitter and and other channels in light of the government's announcement on Sunday about getting people back to work was join a union. So is the care sector relatively well unionized? You know, is that one of the things that could help in this moment and improve PPE and pay and conditions? It's not particularly well unionized, particularly if you compare social care to the NHS the proportion of healthcare workers who are unionised is so much higher than the proportion of care workers who are unionised. And yeah, I think it does make a big difference. I've been looking at some of the work that unions have been doing on social care at the moment with councils, you know, pushing councils to pay a real living wage to care workers, pushing councils to promise full sick pay to care workers if they get ill. At the same time, I think it's a tough sector for unions because, as we were saying earlier, it's so fragmented. There was an article recently in The Guardian by a care worker in Liverpool who joined Unison and got involved in a local campaign, had a big breakthrough with the council who agreed to invest £6 million to ensure that care companies give full sick pay to workers who need to self-isolate. And so that's going to make a huge difference to a lot of care workers, but it doesn't actually change anything for this particular care worker who wrote the article because they work for a private care company that isn't commissioned by the local council. So there's big questions, I think, both about power and how you can build up the power of care workers through unions and giving them a stronger collective voice, but then also about accountability within this like complicated and disjointed system that we've got which does prevent effective public action you know to lift up standards in social care. Yeah I mean I think it's incredibly important to be having these conversations and also to emphasize the impact of this on the people themselves who are being cared for. I mean, I have a friend who anecdotally was talking to me recently about how, you know, she has a carer, she has a rotor of carers who come in to provide in-home care for her and they've not been provided with PPE. And she's like, you know, I have to make a decision between inviting them into my home to help me with the kind of basic needs that I have, going to the toilet, eating, et cetera, and potentially putting them in danger. And that's not a decision anyone should have to make. Yeah, I think that's so tough. And we've talked a lot about care homes and a lot of the sort of stuff that you see in the papers is about care homes. But at the same time, there's also the question of kind of what's going on for people who are getting care in their own homes. And as you suggest, I think it's likely that a lot of people at the moment who need care and support, who are living in their own homes, aren't getting it because they are not being provided with a safe enough way to get it. And also, actually, I think one of the changes that we haven't talked about yet, that the government brought in with the pandemic, the coronavirus bill made changes to the Care Act, which sort of sets out people's rights to care and support. And it actually diminished people's rights to get that support by sort of basically accepting the fact that local authorities might be put in a situation during the pandemic where they are forced to concede that they can't meet their basic statutory duties so that they can't do the needs assessments that they should be doing. They can't guarantee people's right to care in in the same way. So that's all hidden 
but it's all going on. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I feel like you're doing a great job on this podcast of surfacing a lot of the things that are hidden uh, and going on. So thank you for that. I want to wrap up in a second, but a couple more questions. One of them is around this, you know, clapping for carers narrative that's been proliferating. So every Thursday, people have been clapping for carers on their doorsteps or banging saucepans, as is the case on my street. So do you think that in light of that and kind of some of the other narrative shifts that we've seen around, you know, NHS heroes, for example, et cetera, et cetera, the pandemic is an opportunity to change the way that we value care work. I'm really hopeful that it is. You know, it's it's all very well to clap carers. You know, I've, I've been doing it. Loads of people have been doing it. In some ways, it's it's a good thing, but it needs to kind of come with more scrutiny of the conditions that care workers are working in. Yeah, it just can't end there, can it really? And when you talk about changing the narrative, I mean, I think for so long with social care, we have sort of effectively, you know, tried to do social care on the cheap. And I think for as long as we primarily see social care for as long as the government talks about social care, the media talks about social care as a burden, as a cost to the public purse, then that will always lead us to try and do it on the cheap. And I think part of this narrative shifting has to be us asking ourselves, why as a society do we choose to provide this service? Like, Why is it important? And recognising all of us actually have a stake in it. We're all dependent on each other. We care about each other generally. And any of us at at any point in our lives might need support. So obviously, you know, it's people who use social care at the moment, it's their families, it's people who work in it, who have that really concrete stake, but it's there for all of us. And I think having that conversation about why social care matters, you know, it has to be the starting point for change. I'm seeing, you know, a lot of parallels between the conversations we've been having in recent weeks about the austerity narrative and about childcare and all these things. You know, essentially, it feels like what we're saying is we need a fundamental reframe in what we think these things are for and what we think that their objective should be before we can even start to engage with shifting the public narrative to get people on side with some of the changes that we think we need. So let's talk about those changes. Let's wrap up. So what to you would fixing social care actually look like both for those who use it and depend on the services and for people like my mum who work in it? My view is that we need a universal social care service, universal like the NHS, because then the cost burden of care is shared fairly rather than falling to individuals. And we can make sure that everyone who needs support can get it. I also think that we need a decentralised social care service. So I think the model that we've got in the NHS, that probably isn't quite right for social care because it has to meet really diverse needs. And a pluralist approach, I think, is better than trying to shoehorn care into a one-size-fits-all kind of model. But At the same time, I mentioned earlier, I think we need a much stronger set of national standards than we have at the moment for social care. I think that has to include a better deal for care workers, which looks at pay, which looks at job security, which looks at supporting a much stronger collective voice for care workers as well. But at the same time, a care service that is 
locally coordinated and delivered, where local authorities play a much stronger role and support the development of models of care that are driven by social purpose, not for profit, and that are accountable to the people who use them, or even led by the people who use them, as a lot of disabled people's organisations are. So yeah, I mean, this is something that we're going to be doing a lot more work on at NEF over the next few months. The government has promised that they will fix social care, in their words. Okay. (laughs) It's a big promise. We'll see what happens on that. I do think there is going to be a lot of public pressure after the pandemic and particularly after the crisis that we've seen in care homes for the government to do something significant. The question is really whether there are enough people, enough organisations coming together with a shared vision for what care sort of needs to look like to put pressure on the government to make sure that we get a settlement for social care that doesn't paper over the cracks, but that actually makes more generous, more sustainable system. Mm, okay, let's get organised. That all sounds good to me. Thanks so much, Sarah, for that careful and skillful uh, guide through the care work system. It's a complex one, as you laid out, and I think you did a brilliant job of explaining it for us. That's all we've got time for this week, lovely listener. But if you're desperate for more, we'll be following up this discussion in an online briefing over Zoom on Thursday, the 21st of May. We'll be talking to Sarah again, as well as Unison organiser Connor McGurran, Emeritus Professor of Economics at the Open University Sue Himmelwaite? Himmelwaite. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, Sue. And founder of Equal Care Co-op, Emma Back. Keep an eye on our social media or sign up to our mailing list for updates on that. We'll include the links in the podcast notes like we always do. Sarah Bedford, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to hear more from you, find out about your work, where can they go? What should they read? They can go on the NEF website and look for me there or on Twitter where I believe I am Sarah Bedford 5. Okay, the fifth in the Sarah Bedford lineage. I hope they're all as passionate and knowledgeable about care working as you. All right, that's it for today's weekly economics podcast. Lovely listener. And that's it for the series. So sad, but we'll be back very, very soon recording from my kitchen. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. <laughs>